um, and a good friend of mine, Sally Ross, who's a beautiful painter who I admire a lot, she says, until you give up doing the things you don't want to do and focus heavily on the things you really love, they'll never fully take over and it will never fully blossom for you. And I think, to some extent, that's true. And I think if there's something that you really want to do and you love so much, if you put everything you can into it, even if it doesn't work, you have to try that. Otherwise, you'll regret it. Malcolm McLaren said it's better to be a spectacular failure than a benign success. And I would love that. Like, if you just go at it hard and it might, hopefully it'll work. And if it doesn't, at least you try it. Hi, I'm Dan Brophy. Welcome to Quit Your Day Job, a podcast for frustrated creatives. My guest this week is the artist Will Huxley. Along with his partner in art and life, Garrett, he forms one half of The Huxleys, which is a performance art experience, allowing him to play in the space of experimental theatre, costume design, photography and video. The Huxleys are two of the most recognisable artists in the country, mainly due to their larger-than-life costumes and the colourful performances that are as laid with meaning as they are widely accessible. They've been guests of every major art event and profiled by every major media outlet in the country. Will and I came up alongside each other at film school. Since graduating in the middle of the 2000s, we've both faced the disillusionment of trying to work out where we fit into an ever-narrowing film and TV industry. Will and I discussed the way he's forged a path towards making work that he really believes in and turned it into a career. This is a great chat for anyone that's feeling discouraged by the lack of opportunity within their dream industry, or for those who are unsure about how to make the bridge from the work that they're currently doing to the work that they want to be doing. It's a great reminder for everyone that Will's journey has taken the better part of 15 years, but every step along the way has equipped him with yet another tool for creating work and building a career that is unlike anyone else. It's like my mother always says, if it were easy, everyone would do it. Before we get down to the business of being a creative, if you enjoy the podcast, do what you can to share the love. Write a review and rate us on iTunes. Share a link for an episode that you're really vibing off via text message. Or, and this is the most effective, screen capture the point in the episode that you're listening to and you're inspired by and post it to your Instagram or Facebook stories. Don't forget to tag me, Dan Brophy, so that I can repost it on my channels and also get an idea for exactly what you enjoy so I can give you more of the same. And if you haven't done so already, don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss a career-inspiring, game-changing trick. So sit back, relax, pop on something sparkly, possibly a full face of makeup, and enjoy my chat with Will Huxley. So Will Huxley of the Huxleys. I feel like this is a talk show. This is great. Um, so I love to ask people when I start, like when people say to you, what do you do? What do you tell them? Um, nowadays I say that I'm an artist uh, and it's, yeah, it's, it's exciting to say that it's, it's like, you know, I, for a long time I've worked doing art and film stuff for other people, but now I'm just working for myself and, and with my partner and, um, yeah, it's saying you're an artist is, it's kind of, you're yeah. legit. <laughs> yeah. That's actually what I'm doing. I make my living from being an artist and it's, yeah, it's taken me a long time to get to that, where that is 
the one thing that I do. I've had to do a lot of horrible things along the way. And we'll get to that yeah. because, you know, you and I know each other from being schlubs on film sets working for free because it was a uni expectation yeah. in film school, which is amazing and we learned so much and we wouldn't change it for a minute. But ultimately, there has been a really long journey where yeah. now you are no longer subsidizing your income alongside a creative practice. You're just doing the thing. Yeah. So you live in the dream. Yeah. Um, well, you're my oldest friend in Melbourne as well. You're one of the first people I met when I moved here. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> that, that two years ago. Yeah, totally. When we met at a uni two years ago. Um, no, so that was 2004 that we met. Yeah. And that, that was my first year of film school. Yeah. And the journey that's taken you from... Because I remember when, when we finished film school, I think I finished in 2006. Did you... you some... I finished 2004... And you went to the VCA, yeah. And I went to RMIT, and I, and we both, only really thought we were going to work in film. Yeah. And neither of us actually work in the film industry at the moment. Yeah. But I think we're sort of happier than we would have been if we had gotten what we wanted. Yeah. Well, I came out of film school super like amped and thinking I can, I'm going to be a director because that's how the VCA experience works. You know, they, there's a lot of ego there, which is weird. <laughs> It's a lot of bad well, things. You, but you've got to have that. Otherwise, you. I don't. I think if you didn't believe that you were going to be a star, yeah, a star director or you know a successful producer or cinematographer, yeah. I don't think you'd put up with how how many hurdles there are yeah. to getting through the process. The Australian film industry is such a difficult and such a competitive world, and so few films get made. And there, there's a real style of film that that seems to work successfully in Australia so it just I felt like the kind of stories that I wanted to make were not easily going to be made and I remember my graduating film which you were actually in one one of the women said that this performance of the one of the female characters is terrible it's straight out of a John Waters film and to me that was like the best compliment but that's not the kind they want realism and they want you know gritty urban drama and it's just not my thing um, so I kind of struggled with that. And then I went out of film school and found it hard to get work in the industry, but ended up working in television and TV so different. And I went, like all my ambitions were crushed very quickly as a production assistant at the ABC carrying tapes around. <laughs> but like it gradually worked my way up to the ABC to doing something I liked more, but it was always working for someone else. And um, it just, it never fully fulfilled what I was interested in doing. And what really, what was the final straw for me was actually working in commercial television. And that's when I realized that just anything, any like desire to make films that I had kind of felt burned out by the commercial television experience. I was like, this is so far from the creative notion that I had as being a filmmaker. Yeah, so it was just like, that was for me, I was like, I can't do this. I remember working on a a show for Bunnings. (laughs) And I was literally watching paint dry. Seriously, like filming paint dry. No, not metaphorically, no, but literally. literally. And like what, filming like instructional videos on how to remove grout from tiles. It was so depressing that it was actually kind of liberating. I was like, this is it. And that was my last job in TV. And, you know, I worked on The Real Housewives of Melbourne with a whole bunch of assholes and, and you know, Dancing with the Stars and all these kind of just soul destroying where everything that you do creatively doesn't seem to make a difference because it's a formula and you have to follow exactly like I didn't feel like any of like my weird ideas or my effort that I would put in would actually come out on screens (laughs) 
And, you know, speaking of, of weird ideas, for those who, who, you know, you've said that you're an artist and I have a strong idea of what that looks like. But for those that don't know, when someone does ask you to elaborate on what sort of artist you are, yeah. what do you say? Well, predominantly, I work with Garrett, who's my partner, and we're the Huxleys. That's, that just kind of happened. People started calling us that. And, and when we started collaborating with our art form, so I, we're predominantly a photographer and a video artist, um, but I've always had a real keen interest in costume, and I used to do production design, so I was always interested in, in that world. But Garrett comes from a fine art kind of... He makes costumes, and... He does his own, some of his own photography as well. So we just combined those skills and helped each other. And then it, it, it really, something happened. There was this spark and we helped each other achieve bigger ideas than we might've done on our own. And it just took off from there. So we, we, we mainly start with like a visual art first. So we'll make a costume for a photo or a video work. And then people started asking us to bring that to life on stage in festivals and galleries. and. And it just kind of big took off and a lot of people call us performance artists. Um, but that's not the, that was sort of not the first point. It, but it became that way. So we sort of saturate the market really. <laughs> we like to do performance, costume, video, photography, installation, anything that we can really, as, as visual as possible. I love the idea that it grew organically because if you had tried to set out to be a performance artist, that is such an overwhelming concept and all of the layers that needed to be in place for the for some of the more later discoveries of your output the idea of jumping straight to that might have been so overwhelming and therefore impossible yeah you almost needed to incrementally just go with what you were most fascinated by or most turned on by at that time and then continually adding layers because once seeing what the final product is yeah. I'm not surprised that you got to that because as long as I've known you which is 14 years now um, you've always had a flair for performance and there's always been a dark comedic twisted comedy to whatever you love and get turned on by and are excited by and also I mean the space that we're sitting in now is your apartment and I'm and I'll probably try and publish some of the the Vogue living images of the apartment alongside the this podcast to give or even just take some because it's such a beautiful space but every time you've lived in a space you've in, you, it has completely come to life with your inspirations you know it's almost like a bowerbird <laughs> style collection of everything that you're yeah. books and posters and shell art and <laughs> I, I, I'm a, I guess I'm a maximalist I love there was a quote from Vivian Westwood where she says minimalism is for people without taste <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea to be I love to be surrounded by things that that influence me and inspire me and be like colors or images or plants or it's any yeah I just take a stimulus is really important to me and, and that's where I take a lot of inspiration from our artwork is from other artwork or fashion or photography or uh, masks or anything I can find inspiration and that's why I like my the house is so busy but also moving into a depressing 90s apartment was really brutal and I was like how are we gonna offset having to live in this place and just fill it with as much things as we love and then it doesn't feel like you're in a apartment that has no design you know like I'd love to live in an architecturally glorious place but in Melbourne it's unaffordable so um, that's the, the trade-off 
I also it makes sense to me that you're filling, you know, my creative hero is Julia Cameron, who wrote The Artist's Way, and she talks so much about filling the well in terms of having, in order to be able to draw on your creativity, you need to infuse it and inspire it and nurture it and nourish it. And if you are constantly surrounded by your inspiration points, you're not buying a Matisse print and thinking, oh, I'm going to use that as inspiration in a work. Yeah. You're just thinking, oh, I like it and I want it in my space. Yeah. But then inevitably shape and form and color and texture does inf infuse your work. So if, we're, if you're surrounded by your inspirations all the time, it's not surprising that you make work that's colorful. And yeah, that, that's, yeah, it permeates into your life some in some ways, like the, you're not intentionally. But what I thought was really interesting what you said about um, us, like if we said, I want to be a performance artist, <laughs> And you're right, it never would have worked. I feel like we just made work that things that we were excited by and wanted to create. And it's sort of snowballed and each step along the way to get where we are now. I never would have believed myself if I'd said like six years ago that this is what I'd be doing. I just thought I would still have to be working in television for people that... <laughs> um, John Waters, another one of my heroes, said that success is never having to work for assholes. And, and that is at the moment I'm just working Garrett can be an asshole, <laughs> but I can be an asshole too <laughs> but so but we don't have to work for other assholes we're the only assholes that we work for and like this is my rule of dating as long as I'm the most high maintenance person at the table in the relationship then I'm okay yeah. like, I don't want to date anyone that's more high maintenance than I am <laughs> yeah. I feel that's the thing with Garrett I, he's less maintenance than I am so, yeah, he's a succulent it, it works yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it, it works together like it's been really nice to have someone that you trust to work with well let's talk about that period between finishing school you know finishing uni 2004 it was for you you know it, how long would you say that you've been able to be only working only relying on your craft and art as your sole source of income so now, I mean I, <clears throat> I I was quite lucky in the sense that I left film school and I went into the industry and not a lot of people get to do that but it wasn't necessarily doing what I really want I started as a production assistant which was just a lot of organizing I'm terrible at that kind of stuff but I had to get good at it I had this really mannish deranged boss called Dione who was kind of I was terrified of, but also inspired by. She, she's actually one of the biggest listeners of this show. So just, <laughs> I, I ended up loving her, but she was so tough and she'd just make you realize that you were at the very bottom. And that was kind of what TV is like. There's a real hierarchy, which I don't really like. But um, I, so f I, I worked up to being a researcher and then I ended up being a producer working predominantly in art TV, which was the best of TV that I could find because I was still surrounded by making stories about musicians and artists, photographers, fashion. So yeah, I was surrounded by creative people and being a creative person myself, that was where I was most comfortable. But the ABC kind of, often you lose your job. I've lost my job there. Like I've worked there on and off like three or four times and every time I get fired, not for, not for being bad, but just because the ABC has budget cuts. Yeah. And so you never feel comfortable there. Um, and then I ended up working in commercial television. So I worked in, I worked for Channel 7 and Channel 9 and Channel 10. I worked on a show called Everybody Dance Now that got axed within the first month, which was fantastic. I was so happy to lose that job because it was horrible. But, yeah, I found the commercial TV the hardest I've ever thing I've ever had to do. Just it was 
it just was so not creative and it's full of young people that want to make money that love the idea of working in television but they're not actually really creative people a lot of them are like travelers or people from <laughs> gypsy folk <laughs> I work with a lot of English like people that just come here and they work really hard and I admire that but they're not I never really found anyone in that industry that I felt was a true creative filmmaker mm. and I feel there's a big disconnect with television especially reality TV it's it's so far removed from film for me I just and, and everyone pretends that they're making something inspiring and creative but inevitably it's it's got to make money and it's commercial and it's about exploiting people well it's, it's a lot easier to sleep at night if you are someone who exists in that space and doesn't aspire creatively to more because it, it's, it's such disconnect there that yeah. unfortunately it won't change because of that reason but it's also not going to attract people who do want to do um, groundbreaking work because it's a sausage factory yeah. you know the only way those shows exist and, and can continue to because also when a show returns for a second season rarely do they say well let's give it a bigger budget and see what we can allow for creatively to imbue the next season. They go, as a matter of fact, we did it for $400,000 this time around. Let's see if we can do it for three fifty, and what can we shave off next time around to make it a much more streamlined machine because of the learnings from last season. So I, I think that, you know, in general, it's probably not the space that you're going to find. I mean, where do filmmakers who want to, for those people who are listening, who really want to exist in the film industry or want to create narrative that exists on TV or, or in cinema. Yeah. Have you found that friends of yours from, from film school have gravitated towards certain careers before they managed to be directors in, in the film industry? It's interesting and it's actually quite sad, but the people that I went to VCA with that had successful are men, <laughs> predominantly like really, really driven, really competitive and, uh, you know they're all white men <laughs> and you know and they they've done really well but I knew at the time that that they were really driven and you have to be and I'm I have a I'm not that confident so just I I couldn't sell myself the way that they can and you know they're obviously talented as well but the Australian film industry is predominantly a lot of male directors and sadly, and, and I think that's changing and I'm really hopeful. Um, but yeah, to get your story, you have to be really, really driven and really, um, you have to sell yourself and be out there constantly pushing to get funding. And it's so hard. And it, I just found it overwhelming. Um, but there, but there are other roles and you can, you know, I know people that have gone into cinematography or, or they work as gaffers or lighting assistants, or there's a lot of craft roles. Mm. Um, but, for me that I wanted to be I wanted to be something more ridiculous and bigger and I didn't want to have to be setting up a light <laughs> or like, you know I, 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 I like production design because mm. that I could see my work and I could see it visually um, but yeah I just found that he worked really hard on the film industry and not always do you get the the glory of having your work seen because you're one of those people behind the scenes unless you're lucky enough to be a director or uh, when and that's tough and it's particularly in Australia 
Um, but it, it is possible, I think, and there are lots of rules coming into play that are trying to encourage and support women. And um, also people of different nationality backgrounds. Yeah, and, you know. that's so important because when I was at VCI, I did feel like it was a boys' school, like, mm. you know. And, and, school, a, and a heterosexual white male school. Yeah. It's not even like Even the uh, gay people that were there were closeted. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> Including myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, I, it, it is a tough but it, I, I'm hopeful that that Australian film industry. There have been booms in the past, like in the '90s, there was a boom. Mm. In the '70s, you know, two of my favourite films are I love Picnic at Hanging Rock and Muriel's Wedding, and they're both Australian. And I have hope that there is, you know, another golden age of Australian cinema. Yeah, I'm sure that and now Australian films are always like they're well made, even if I don't like them. Yes. Like I often think that you know, there's a craft. Um, there just seem to be a lot of serious, angsty, realist dramas about crime mm. in this country, and it never appeals to me. You know, I feel like films like Animal Kingdom and, mm. and The Boys, they're great, but they're all so dark and all very masculine, in romper stuff, but all those kind of... Yeah, but also <laughs> even then you're referring to films that are 10 to 20 years old, in terms of, you know, the, the most recent version of the film in that genre that came out in the last year or two would be maybe Cut Snake, or, you know, there, there's just so many... Uh, examples of films that subscribe to genres that have been successful before but then yeah. what do you expect a film industry to do when there are so few successes rather than if it was America they'd only be banking on what's worked before yeah, in order yeah. to make something that's going to hopefully work again but I would say to anyone who wants to exist in a narrative space that we've come, come through so many like a decade or two of disappointment about opportunities dwindling I think if you want to make narrative, it's actually a better time than ever before because of the opportunities through content and online as, mm. as being something that you can use, even if it's not going to be the end game, why not spend five to 10 years making, honing your voice yeah. in a narrative space? Yeah, I think, I think it's there is, and I also feel like the, the way to make things has changed. It doesn't have to be that high end, uh, you know, there are, the technology has become more available for more people at an affordable mm. kind of, and you can make something without having a huge budget. Um, you can get a DSLR camera that shoots beautiful video. You can use your phone. Yeah, it's there's that there are ways like there's a film called Tangerine that was Tangerine made, was shot on phone. Was shot on a phone, and it's an incredible film. I, I just, that something like that inspires me that. Uh, you know, when I came out of film school, I was like, oh, it's so expensive to shoot on film because we shot on 16mm. And, and and I just thought, oh. but it, things have changed. And um, perhaps now if I was coming out of film school, I might be able to pursue some of my weirder film ideas. But I find that I've come to a place now where I'm, actually, I'm using a lot of my skills that I made as a filmmaker and a photographer, and I'm using them in a completely new way. And um, I'm so excited that that wasn't a waste for a while. I was like, I spent all these years studying and I'm just working in commercial TV. Um, but now I'm using it in a way that I love. But I, I think that that's something that's so valid about that because, you know, if we flash back 10 years, uh, you and I would have both been finding ways to be filmmakers. Mm. We only would have seen directing feature film as being the number one aim because of... And, and our actual skill set is different enough that what we've both come to is se separate to each other but at the, the reason why we thought we wanted to do the same job is because when you're coming up as a kid you look at all the jobs that are on offer and you relate to cinema more than anything else 
and you know that the job that you think that you want to do most it would be to be the writer and director of that experience because you're good at authoring ideas and you have something to express and there's a there is a performative element to that as well yeah. if you're encouraging actors to 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 find their performance through the work so it makes sense that you'd look at opportunities as a teenager and think, well, being a, a film director makes sense. I think that I wanted to be in front of the camera mainly, but I was too hammy. <laughs> I think I was too big for film. Um, and so I thought, oh, maybe I should be behind the camera. But I did originally want to be an actor when I was a kid. And then I went to Whopper in Perth uh, to start studying. And I found actors so intense and it was so... I just, it, it was too much. I, I kind of recoiled from it. thought, I can't be this loud and this out. And, and it was it kind of threw me. I was like, this world is too much for me. And I've gravitated back towards being behind the camera and just being the author of stuff. Um, but I always had that performance bug. And I think it's amazing that all these years later, so, you know, 20, almost 20 years later from when I wanted to be an actor, I'm now using performance skills again that I never thought that I would. Um, and being a performer is a big part of what we do now. And it's, it's a weird, uh, it's, it's a, I've kind of come full circle <laughs> and but picked up a whole lot of different skills on the way. You also, I, I feel like that energy doesn't go away. It, it just finds a new way to realize itself. So you've got a natural ability towards expressing yourself in that way that made you think, yeah, I, w- I want to be an actor. But actually, a big part of being a successful working actor in this day and age is to be malleable and invisible in some ways and um, emotionally available to be able to have huge emotional experiences, you know, at the top of a hat. and. You know, a good actor is all those things who can work and be a jobbing performer in that space. I I re- love the idea of being an actor too, but I'm not necessarily any of those things. But yet, when I need to be performative, I can really do that. Yeah. Because I also related to the idea of being an actor. So I think it's really interesting for people to question why they want, why they think they want to do the job that they want to do. Because maybe maybe the solution is not what you think it is because you just haven't discovered the best use of your skills because maybe that job doesn't exist yet. Yeah. You know, yeah. The, everything that you do, I don't know of many artists that, that create work like you and Garrett. And so 10 years ago, eight years ago, five years ago, it would have been impossible to steer yourself in that direction specifically yeah. because the job didn't exist. I didn't think that it was possible to make a living, um, doing what we do in but it has been so far one of the things that i was really key was the at the beginning of last year i finished up at the abc and uh, and i was really scared because i was like um you know i'd been busy working as a performer and as a visual artist with garrett but i still had the abc work to subsidize a lot of that and i was like this job's coming to an end and i've got no other job and i really didn't want to have to look for work in tv and I was like, I'm just going to try and jump off the deep end and say, this is going to be my sole income and I'm going to try and make this work without having to do another job that I didn't really want to do. And because I made that decision, it was almost like I had to focus so intently on what I, what, what I loved doing that I made it work, you know, and work started to come in and the harder you, more effort you put into it, more people will appreciate it. And and things started to roll in and I didn't need to get another job last year and I'm hoping that it's going to be the same. But I think sometimes you have to take that risk and just say, 
I'm not going to, um, if I really want to do this, then I have to take a risk and say, you know, because if I took a job in film, I wouldn't have had time to make the photography work that we made and do the performances and costumes and stuff that would have suffered. And then you would only be doing it half, you know? So it was like, um, and a good friend of mine, Sally Ross, who's a beautiful painter who I admire a lot. She says, until you give up doing the things you don't want to do and focus heavily on the things you really love, they'll never fully take over and it will never fully blossom for you. And I think and to some extent that's true. And I think if there's something that you really want to do and you love so much, if you put everything you can into it, even if it doesn't work, you have to try that. Otherwise you'll regret it. Malcolm McLaren said it's better to be a spectacular failure than a benign success. And I always love that. Like if you just go at it hard and it might, hopefully it'll work. And if it doesn't, at least you try it. That was kind of a thing for me. I, also, if nothing's wasted, you know, say for example, you were to put all your eggs in the basket of making your dreams a reality. Yeah. At the end of that experience, if you didn't manage to solely exist on an income that you are satisfied with doing the thing that you love, how as far as deathbed ref, like reflections of your life goes, <laughs> I dare say that that six months or that 12 months that you, or that three months that you dedicated your life to the thing that you love most in the world, surely that that is worth something. Yeah, know? I think so. And the other thing I've learned is that doing what I love, there are still times when I'm, when I'm not super, like if I'm not super busy, there are people from the previous world that I existed in that asked me to do things. So this year I did a couple of freelance stories for the ABC and I made some video art for some other friends who are, you know, I still use those skills and I pick and choose rather than having to do, do it all the time. And it actually is more pleasurable because I'm not forced to do it all the time. I can say, Oh, I've got time to make this. And, um, it's a nice to use those skills when you want to, rather than having to do it. Sometimes when you do what you think that you wanted to do originally as a full-time work, it becomes not as fun anymore. And I found that with working in te television, that being a filmmaker, it wasn't as close to what I had imagined. Doing it full-time in, in that way just kind of took all the fun out of it. Yeah, for me, I actually found that I, I didn't need much in order to be really happy in my work life day to day. There were quite simplistic things once I was designing I work for myself now and in that process of going from working from some, for someone else to working for myself, I thought the only way I was going to be happy was to work on projects that were in line with, you know, that were really cool, that were like totally in line with, with everything that I would make if I had the total clean slate to choose what I wanted to work from. But I realized that for me, the most important thing was just being able to choose who I work with. and. Yeah and what the music that's being played in the room is and how hot the room is and how bright the room is. And, you know, like simple things that on the daily used to get me down because I was in like a dark room with no natural light and terrible music or no music and, you know, assholes. And once I got a chance to just design the space in which I existed, I was so happy that I could be making anything, really. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and at the end of the day, like having a nice day-to-day -day experience was less about the output and more about the process. For yeah. me, yeah. Uh, in terms of what you've learned through working for other people that you applied to a, a solo practice or an independent creative practice, in that ten-year gap between finishing uh, film school and then starting to do work that looks like what you and Garrett do now, 
and even once there was some overlap and you were working for them and for yourself simultaneously, do you now apply skills to do with the running of your own business or your own art practice that you can see came from other professional experiences that you had previously? Yeah, I I feel like um, a lot of the a lot of the skills I learned working at the ABC, I apply to things that I do now. So you know, I I, I worked with some cameramen and some I learned stuff about lighting and I learned stuff about um, cameras and lenses and stuff like that, which were really helpful. But I also um, I worked with some really smart people. So I worked for a while with Virginia Trioli. And mm. she taught me a lot about interviewing people and I did all her research for her, for her interviews. So she was really exacting, but I found her fascinating. And I also loved that she's very smart and very like strong and intense woman, but she's also a real dag and she loves George Michael. And she has this kind of like, she loves bad taste as much as good taste. And I, I love that. And that's another thing. We, we both worked together on this John Waters interview and I got to meet him and she interviewed him. And he said to her that to appreciate bad taste and to love bad taste, you have to have good taste first. <laughs> and we both really enjoyed that. But I, I just, I loved, I loved working with intelligent, strong women. I think that was a thing that I really took. And also uh, people along the way pushed me to, in, in commercial television, to hide aspects of myself. And I learned along the way to reject that. And what I do now is fully immersed. <laughs> like every ridiculous impulse I have creatively and visually is to, to explore that. And I learned uh, to do the opposite from working <laughs> in commercial TV. I felt really, I felt like a quiet kind of person and that's never been who I am. But I felt like I had to tone myself down and, and this yeah so I did learn that (laughs) but you know there are things like if I have to go back you know sometimes I do work for the ABC still and all the skills I learned as a documentary maker are are, are really valuable to me so you know this year I was asked to do a story on the Australian Ballet for them and I just switched back into the stuff that I learned about interviewing and shaping stories and a lot of the stuff I've learned in the between film school and now um, uh, uh, sort of Nonfiction. I, I made a lot of documentary work, but I really tried to pursue stuff that still attracted me, so a lot of art content. Well, you've also been in the professional space for long enough that when you're left to your own devices to have a solo creative practice, you know what a workday looks like and you know how your productivity works best, yeah. what time of day you should be waking up. And you know, Talk to me about how you structure your days when you are working on a, something just for yourself. You have to, like, I, I have to be disciplined. Otherwise, uh, I, <laughs> working for yourself, that's a problem. Like, you can't, if you're not disciplined, you can, I have to get up and I have to go somewhere and do it. So I, I tried for a while, Garrett and I worked from home and it became overwhelming having all our work around us and there was no space and you, it, it's great to go somewhere and make work. So we have a studio in Collingwood that, where I edit and where we film, we've got a green screen in there and all our costumes. And it's a place that you go to work and then you come home and home is just somewhere to relax and unwind and you don't bring all that stuff with you. I think that's really important. Even if it's a a hot desk or somewhere where you feel that, that you're working away from, otherwise 
there's a tendency I I could just lie on the couch and listen to a record or <laughs> or masturbate. Yeah. <laughs> <You> Procrastinate. <laughs> like there's it, you can get too comfortable being at home. So it's um I think it's good to have a place of work. Um and and if I've got a deadline, I work really well under by under pressure because I have to get it done. I'm I'm not a person who starts things early which has always been a problem for me, but I do work well when there is a deadline and I just, I kind of just, I just snap into this mode where I have to get this done. I've just been working with uh, Sarah Ward on a, for her show at the art center, which opens in a couple of weeks. And it was an intense period of editing and filming and that it's all, their whole show is visual art, which I've made for them. And that I really had to be really disciplined um, and like get into the studio and start editing and, just yeah and 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 work almost as though i was working in you know for project runway when i worked for them or you know for one of those big, you know you have to have put in those same kind of hours but there is a big difference i find that i feel sometimes like i feel a little bit more burnt out some days working for myself than i did when i worked in only because it doesn't always shut off. So what Garrett and I do, like we come home and we're still thinking about it. And we're like, well, what are we gonna do for this performance? And we've got to make those costumes. What are our ideas? We, it doesn't, yeah. Whereas sometimes when you work for someone else, you can go home and you think, oh, I filmed that, I did that. Like, I don't, yeah, it's a weird thing. Working for yourself, it does sometimes take more mental the stakes yeah. are higher. Yeah, you know, you I mean, care I- more of, uh, because it's you out there, ju- just you, and you're not. You know, when I was working for Channel Seven, I didn't like. I worked hard, but I wasn't invested in it because I didn't really appreciate the outcome. But when you're invested in your own practice and it's your name and your work out there that you love, you're always thinking about it and you really care about it and you're you you want it to you want it to be really good. So it their stakes are higher, and I, that is one thing that I think freelancers they do work like they work crazy hours and and you never know when your next job's going to come so sometimes i say we say yes to so many things that we're just so busy because we're scared that if we don't say yes we might not have money to live on (laughs) so you do have these really intense periods um but i think it balances out because you you love what you're doing so even if you are tired and run down from it you have a lot to look at and say be proud of yeah, I know this, you know, we, we're used to the idea of working 50 hours a week for someone else. And then when you do work for yourself, it ends up being 90 hours a week for better or worse. Yeah. On the one hand, you can you can contribute that much energy because your your name is in, in the mix. Your heart and soul are on the line. That is the thing that ultimately gets you out of bed early and allows you to stay awake and go the extra mile on the daily. Yeah. But then uh, the flip side of that is you are more burnt out because you can't compartmentalize it because you're, you've got too much skin in the game sometimes. Yeah, I, we've had to learn to make sure that we say, oh, we're not doing anything for this period and have a break. So like we just had like a week off, um, which was, we said no to a couple of gigs around Christmas uh, just because we needed that space like to recharge. Really successful artists that I've encountered who are further along in their career are very fiercely protective of their time and they also um, seem to, to to not budge when it comes to no amount of money would make them reconsider um, unless they did the math and worked out it would give buy them some creative freedom yeah. elsewhere yeah um, you, you have to you have to make yeah it's it's taken us a long time to be able to say no to stuff 
um, because you're scared and you're trying to build yourself up and get work coming in. But you, you'd have to, my, my ideal is to get to a point where I only say yes to the things I really, really want to do. So we love doing stuff for like galleries and um, arts festivals and all those things that are aligned with, but we also do corporate gigs as well where we perform at parties and events and they're not always as fun <laughs> and the people aren't always as responsive um, but they pay really well and they have and so you you still you, even within this world that we that we've been creative that we love doing there are still jobs in there that <laughs> you know you're just doing it for the money well also it's there's always some compromise of some kind yeah. and i also wonder whether if you got to a stage where you only had to work on things that you really loved and you no longer had to to find the money jobs within the work that you love whether that would create another mentality that might mean that you would be more complacent or you know there's always yeah. something to, yeah. to keep you hungry I think yeah. and at the point at which that goes away then I think some sometimes your output or your desires or your goals start to, to change because you maybe it all becomes too easy or maybe you know you then go well we've never made a feature film before maybe we should try and do that and then you have to set yourself a new set of intentions I was actually thinking about that just recently because at any stage in any creative person's life in anyone's life there's always the thing that they're working towards and the moment they get there how long do they sit in satisfaction for before they set themselves a new set of goals to look further up the mountain and work out where they want to climb next. Yeah. So that you always, uh, I think if you get the thing that you want, all you're going to do is restructure your goals so that you want something yeah. bigger and better. Yeah. Well, I feel that we're always getting like, you know, sometimes we get complacent with, with, with some of the costumes we've made or some of the performance one, like how do we make this bigger or better or weirder? There's always, we're always trying to, we get bored of doing the same thing. So I'm always trying to, do something more outrageous or more challenging. Um, and I think that's important to keep challenging yourself. A big part of the work is the fact that you're, you're, you're quite invisible when, yeah. when performing. Even if we're seeing your face, we're seeing a, a heavily made up version of your face. Yeah. And sometimes you're completely uh, concealed. Is there some part of that uh, that facilitates a greater level of performance because it's not you it's it's this other being yeah i for me that is my performance desires are always um inspired by not being me being something other than me like an escape and I, i've always fantasy has always been a big thing for me um so creating this alter ego in a way with costumes and makeup it's it's like a mask and it enables me to be more free. And, and Garrett as well is actually a very reserved person and quite shy. So wearing costumes that conceal your identity gives you a freedom to, to, to be bigger and weirder. And it also takes a lot of our costumes are about taking away gender because I think that there's a freedom in that. And, uh, and it often really challenges people. They're like, you know, are you a chick or a dude? And like, just a lot of straight men are really confronted by that concept. And I wanted to get, I want to encourage people to say, who cares what gender you are? This is just take on this visual escape, this beauty, or this weirdness, and, and enjoy it. Things don't have to be so prescriptive. But the costuming and and on that is is an escape and it is a way of being of realizing your fantasy and I want to give to people out there to see something they think wow it takes them away from everyday life and that's always been every, all the art that I love pretty much does that in some way or another it, it, it I I love things that that are an escape 
Um, and I, and that's what I want to create as an artist to give magic or beauty or weirdness. I love the idea that you can gravitate towards modes of escapism to such a degree that your truth is connecting to the creation of escapism. Yeah. You know, if you, I, I have got friends who are so enamored with the, the art or the, the, the output that they love to consume as a mode of escape. And I think, oh, is that, is too much of a good thing bad? Should they ultimately be finding a way to, to connect it to something authentic? But I love that on by the time you see it all the way through, if you were to pursue your creative appetites to such a degree and to consume so much of it that you can start to make it yourself and to make something important, that feels so authentic and true to who you are that your greatest truth is escapism. <laughs> Another thing for me that has been really big in my life is that I spent, you know, the first half of my life fighting the fact that I was queer. Well, not fighting it, but just not being part of Growing up in an environment where it was not encouraged and, and no one ever talked about, like, being in Perth in the 80s and early 90s, it was, it was, my school years were terrible and I had a really hard time with it. And I think because of that, I was very closeted. Um, I was always flamboyant and I, people probably always thought that I was, well, I think they thought I was gay, but I, I struggled with that for a long time. And so I feel like after I came out, I've spent the rest, the other half of my years making up for that, that time, that last time. Once that damn burst. <laughs> and being as queer as possible and, and, and making up for all the people that put me down when I was a kid for being, for being queer. And, and now celebrating it and making it the thing that's my success rather than what was keeping me back. And it, it's and now I want to put that in a lot of my artwork because I want queer visibility and I want it to be fun and celebrated and, and loud and not be hiding. Because it, it's, it's awful not being yourself. And, you know, I, I had a beautiful girlfriend that I loved for a long... And we were... And it was that was one of the hardest parts of my life was having to, to end that because to be who I was, you know, it was a really hard time in my life, but, but she understood because we loved each other and I, she, we had to say goodbye to each other in that way for me to go off and, and do this. And, and we're still great friends now. And, it, uh, and I, f I feel like she's proud of me that I've made that part of my life that I was afraid of the thing that's my success. It's like, I keep, I, I keep quoting people, but that John Waters, another thing that he said was that, um, find the thing in society that people is your weakness that people put you down for and amplify it and you'll win in the end. So it's like being a weird, queer, like freaky kid. I've now amplified that by a hundred in my artwork and it's, I'm succeeding and I'm winning from, from doing that. And, and that was the thing about divine and, and all these characters that, um, in his films where they are, weirdos but they're he was they're so successful because they're to themselves to the 10th degree i love the idea that you have been gravitating towards you this you've always had heroes that exist in this space and you've always had icons that exist in this space i mean all of your homes have been covered in the work of people who are the divines of the world and the john waters of the world that have been wearing their weirdness on their sleeve and yet at a few stages throughout that journey, you might have been lost or wondering what your output was or what your platform should be. Yeah. And yet you always, you've always been gravitating towards it. You just needed to collect enough 
information or inspiration to join the dots so that then you could then uh, exp- find your own version of that yeah. to express through the work. And you, you've got to keep putting it out there, I think, as well. Like you can't, I feel like one of the things is you can't wait for other people to give you the, uh, like, the appreciation or the, the permission. Yeah, you can't wait for them to say, oh, this is great, uh, then keep doing it. Otherwise, you'll be waiting forever. You just have to do what you love and put it out there and eventually people catch up. And then once they've caught up, you've already made a whole lot of... <laughs> Didn't Andy Warhol say that as well? He said, don't wait for people to tell you your art's great. Just keep making it. And by the time they catch up with you, you would have made a hundred more paintings. Uh, well, also, I, I'm interested in the idea that it, you uh, meeting Garrett and you both coming from different disciplines... I love create. I love the notion of creative couples, and and I interviewed um, a photographer couple earlier on in, in this podcast series. Tom and Kate. She come from a law background. He came from a photography background, but her law practice. She ended up becoming a photographer, and they both work side by side. Her awareness around, you know, entertainment law gave them the structure through which to turn their passion into a really thriving business that cross-pollination was so necessary for them to both level up in their their artistry and I'm interested in the fact that you know Garrett has a photography background you know yours was was film you know you were both making work that I mean there's there's a really even split in what the Huxleys do Mm. that is his skill set and your skill set and I don't think people necessarily need to have a romantic partner come into their lives to facilitate that I think if we if we look around we can always find creative collaborators to facilitate better work for ourselves. Yeah, you find someone that compliments you or someone who believes in you, in your work, and and it's great to have someone that you can learn from and they can learn from you. There has to be an exchange in some way. Um, I don't think it has to be romantic. In some ways, it then becomes more complicated. Um, But the good thing is that Garrett and I were partners for many years before we fully started working together so we got to a stable part of our romantic life so then adding the artistic part of it was okay but it but I don't yeah I've always thought that you know we're lucky that we have that we love each other and we have that romantic and creative but you can just find someone else doesn't have to be yeah it doesn't have to be a romantic partner just someone that will be there back you and 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 make work with you and appreciate what you do it's 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 great to have that a lot from Garrett um and you know I feel like I've, I've taught him a lot of stuff as well so um I'm I'm always inspired by his his work and he his costume making is like you know we, I'll come up with an idea and I'll be trying to to think of ways to make it and he will find a way for us to make it or he'll come up with a great idea and bring that weird prototype in and we're like, this is so crazy. How are we going to see in this? Um, but it's always, it's inspiring and it's funny. We always, like, if we're not laughing, we, it doesn't really appeal to us. I think humour is a huge part of what we do. And I also like the, you know, you're talking about me having inspirations. They're, they're like someone like you and I both have always loved Madonna oh, don't even get me started <laughs> and there's one thing that I always take from her is um, she she. I remember her saying once when I was a kid I saw an interview with her and she's saying I'm not the best dancer I'm not the best singer and that doesn't matter I'm, I'm giving everything 
you know, I'm, I'm putting my heart and soul into this and I'm, and I'm playing with all sorts of things, but I'm not the best at any of them, but it doesn't stop me. And that, that, that like love to create something. I mean, I'm not a, me, I'm not a great dancer or singer, but we sing and dance in, in our acts and it's, and I don't care that I, you know, I try really hard. Um, and I think that passion for it comes through and it, I'm not, I never trained as a dancer or a musician or a singer or anything like that, but I love doing it. And it, and that, that's the thing that, and I love watching people who are not necessarily the best at their skill, but they, they give it, and I love performers that give everything and I, that, that inspires me. It's about guts. Yeah. You know, like when I think about, I, I'm exactly aligned with the Madonna school of, of being a, an entertainer or, or being an artist. The Madonna's philosophy when it comes to her, her art and it is, uh, if you wanted the best singer, well, there are plenty of opera singers, you know, where that came from or plenty of pop stars, you know, Mariah before she busted her voice, you know, could have been someone, you know, Ariana is the answer these days. But it's not about skill necessarily because I almost find God-given talent to be a bit boring. <laughs> I would yeah. much rather have guts and yeah. authorship and determination to tell a story in spite of all those things. Some of my favourite performers are, or singers are people that not necessarily, someone like, like Leonard Cohen, for example. Yeah. Or, or Tom Reed. Waits, yeah, The Husk. Iggy, Iggy Pop. Like, none of them are like great natural singers, but they have this this character and this the, the drive and energy and, and enthusiasm for what they do. But also, it comes it's through. somewhere between the the singing of the note there's always a a point in the voice when you're talking about singers and every art form whether it be photography or ceramics or film directing there is the technique and through the technique you see the humanity and I think yeah. that's what people want and I know that when you consume your work Huxley's work I was just thinking now and talking to you about the idea of growing up in a in a oppressive, heteronormative, whitey, white, 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 perthy environment, the idea of the fuck you to the establishment that that lights the fire underneath you, that allows you to go into a space that is a bit more conservative and to flip people's minds out so that they feel almost like they're being accosted by... An assault. By that's assault. It's yeah. an assault yeah, of queer... <laughs> You know, we call energy. ourselves gay terrorists. <laughs> it's a, and as you, you say that, fuck you, one of the things we did last year, which was probably one of the most fun performance works we've done, was when the plebiscite happened on the results day, we were asked by a, an organisation called Minus 18, which is a um, charity for young LGBTIQ kids, um, to perform at the old bar in Fitzroy. And we made this performance uh, to Carmina Burana, the classic... Um, classical composition and um, we wrote it with changed all the lyrics to fuck you so it's fuck you fuck you fuck you fuck you and it was to repeat it over and over and we made a video work and we I made saw it I watched it on repeat yeah and it was so for me it was so cathartic to say fuck you to all the people in my life that had teased me and said and called me a, a pervert or a weirdo or a bit for being queer and saying and also for judging me like last year was the first year living in Melbourne that I really, I had people in Fitzroy yell out like homophobic statements and it was because of the plebiscite and it was because people were given the right to pass judgment on your lifestyle. So that was so, 
I, that that performance was about that, but it was also about all the years growing up in Perth, feeling vulnerable and and feeling like you'd been picked on for who you were. So that was so nice, and and that on the night of that we did it, we were so lucky that the results were yes. Um, but our performance didn't matter if it was yes or no because it was still fuck you for putting us through this in the first place. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and it was the people were singing along and. And it was just like, and but it it, it was silly as well. Like the work was silly, but that but taken very seriously. Like we made it really seriously, even though it was a ridiculous thing. And I love when something is silly but presented with real professionalism and real seriousness. Polish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like silliness that's mastered in a way is really great. <laughs> well, I uh, love to wrap up by asking my guest. If I was to check in with you in a year's time, is there a project that you would like to have completed that is currently just a, a glimmer in your eye or something that you're working on? What is the next year going to be all about for the Huxleys? Well, for, for the last couple of years, we've been wanting to fully realise and finish a project that we started, which is our fictitious glam rock band, which is called SOS, which stands for Style Over Substance which was a, a project that we did where we created a glam rock band and we performed with a, on a big stage with video work and pyrotechnics and dances, but with no music. And it was a silent performance, but with everything that goes along with a normal rock show. And we wanted to produce an album um, that on pressed on vinyl with beautiful artwork, we've made costumes for it. And it's going to be, you know, a beautiful piece of art. And we're working, we want to work with a sound artist who's going to create the idea of what nothing sounds like but very beautiful so so it's like you know the concept of listening to nothing but it is something it's created sort of like in a way the way that Brian Eno makes ambient music but asking a sound artist to create the sound of nothing and so the record will have songs that we've that we've written the titles for and that we imagine in our head but it's going to be nothing. There will be no sound, but you'll, you'll hear something. <laughs> but, but along with this vinyl, we want to do a series of um, large scale photographic works of like, like our band portraits. Um, but they'll be, yeah, beautiful kind of, that, that tie in with each song. So every song will have a theme and there'll be an image for it. And you'll get this with the vinyl and it'll come with all the imagery. And we want to do an exhibition and have a, an opening where we perform and everyone can buy the vinyl. And just that's kind of we want to kind of put to bed that that we're in a final beautiful way that concept and we just need to secure some funding because you know to make it as great as we want we need it's hard to keep funding those things yourself so we hope to to make that this year and we've we've got a gallery interested in in showing that work so that'll be that for me if that happens that this year i'll be so excited well there are some high rollers that listen to this podcast <laughs> and i'm sure you'll be inundated <laughs> yeah I, I hope so and also we just want to keep upping the ridiculousness we will just want to make uh, my ultimate goal is to either represent australia at the venice biennale or eurovision so, oh, so either the, or <laughs> Jessica Mowboy but it takes a seat I know I, I, like why, why do we have to be like all our Eurovision entrants you know they're, they're, they're not bad but they don't embrace the camp outrageous spectacular no. that, that I love about Eurovision and also I'm sorry but there's nothing that's come out of Azerbaijan that's any more bizarre than a Huxley's experience yeah. I even was hoping that like yeah, I remember that I spoke to client liaison and they were in, oh. in the running to do it and they would have been fantastic Stunning. So I, I just feel like, yeah, 
if I don't get to Venice Biennale, I'll take Eurovision. But if the Venice Biennale ever happens, that would be amazing. I'd, like, full gondola experience. <laughs> Rolling around like Madonna's like a yes, virgin. Yes, <laughs> um, I, I've, I've wanted to do this conversation since I began the podcast, and I'm so glad that we got a chance to do it. So it thank great. you so much. It was like coffee talk. Like coffee talk with Linda <laughs> Richmond. But also the fact that we get um, you know, all that we do, like since we've known each other for so long now, that my the language that I have around creative process is something that has come into existence through conversations that you and I would have around creative inspiration and creative process and how to design your day in a really pragmatic way. So it this podcast exists because of our friendship. So I thought it was very yeah. only fitting that we got a chance to talk about it. So I can't think of anyone I'd rather talk to about this oh, kind of stuff. So thank you. And I uh, I um, put me down for a vinyl. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm there. I also feel like in the future when we look back at like, you know, who is making work of the two thousand teens, you guys are are up there like you're you know if it is worth um it is worth people paying attention because it is going to be some of the more important work that's coming through australia in this time so it's 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 essential <laughs> thank you